Good morning. So we saw the record spinning around there. And uh, who doesn't like a good song, right? A good music song. Especially those one-hit wonders, one of those songs that's kind of an earworm you get really excited about. So I'm going to try something new today. All right? I want you to sing a, a song with me. It's a song that some of you will know, maybe some of you don't know as well. Um, it's, a, it's a very popular song. It's a song called Wonderwall by Oasis. You know what song I'm talking about? Now, some of you are like, why is the pastor having us sing a secular song in church? I just want to throw this out there. When I was in Bible college, when this song came out, a couple of our friends would literally actually sit in our living room and pray this song. We would sing. And then parts of it, so there's parts of it would say, uh, I don't believe that anyone feels the way I do about you now. That was like God singing that to us. And then there's other parts where it's like us singing it to God, okay? So this next part, I'm going to ask church to kind of come along. If you know the songs with me, we'll see how this experiment goes. You know I'm not a good singer, so forgive me for that part, okay? And all the roads we have to walk are winding. And all the lights that lead us there are blinding. There are many things that I would like to say to you, but I don't know how. Cause maybe you're gonna be the one that saves me. And after all, my wonder wall. Yes, give yourself a hand. All right. Now, Oasis probably isn't the definition of a one hit wonder. They have a lot of hits, maybe a one album wonder. I wanted to start with this song because there's something very famous about Oasis. They're, they're two brothers. They're two brothers who just couldn't get along. It was very famous from the very beginning. They're in interviews bickering with each other. There'd be stories of them fighting in pubs and actually punching each other in the face, getting pulled apart. Music gets you kind of riled up. I understand that. I was actually in a band when I was in Cambridge. And... Uh, Literally, we were, in, we were performing on stage when the bassist went up to our keyboard player and punched him in the face. Needless to say, that band broke up shortly thereafter. <laughs> but Oasis was famous for this. They would always be bickering. Somehow they got along. They made these hits. But then one day, it was too much. And it actually turned into such acrimony that Liam ended up suing Noel. And now they're in separate bands. Liam has this BDI thing going on, Noel's solo, and they say they will never make music together ever again. Two brothers with such division in their hearts that they can't stand to stand on the same stage together anymore. Today, we're going to look into uh, a situation, uh, a one-hit wonder, a one-chapter book Actually, it's, it's the smallest book in the entire Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. And what we're going to realize is that the book of Obadiah has a long history behind it. It's actually the history of two brothers that had such acrimony that it gets passed down through the generations. Let's begin with Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise up, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations, and you will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes in the heights, who say to yourself, Who can bring us down to the ground? 
And though you soar like an eagle and make your nest amongst the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The prophets didn't mince words. The prophets were about judgment. And the book of Obadiah is very unique in that it is addressed singularly to one nation, and it's not Israel. It's addressed to the nation of Edom. Now, what is Edom? Where is Edom? Why Edom? Let me take a, look at a, a quick look at this map. The kingdom of Edom, you can see, is just south of the kingdom of Judah, which is a, just south of the kingdom of Israel. And there's all these relationships between these nations. For example, the kingdom of Moab, just above it in purple, that's the nation that came out of Lot. The nation of the kingdom of Edom, we're going to find out where they come from. But right now, what we realize is they're very close to each other. And because of that, they are often at acrimony with each other. They often had beef with each other. And so up comes this prophet named Obadiah. We don't know exactly who Obadiah is. There's actually 12 different people in the Bible named Obadiah. Obadiah means servant of the Lord. There's probably two options when this probably took place. It was either 845. We know at some point that Edom and Moab and Ammon all came together and attacked Judah. So it might have been during some time like that, or it might have been a little bit later. And most scholars would go with the later date of 586 BC. This is when Babylon comes and crushes Judah. And Obadiah, some would say, and, and the ancient kind of Jewish uh, commentaries say, that Obadiah was actually an Edomite himself that converted to become a servant of Yahweh. And so he himself is addressing his home country. We've got to keep this in mind as we listen to these words. The problem with Edom was their pride. They lived up in these rocky clefts. In fact, they had a couple different cities. One of them was called uh, Selah, and it was this, this rocky fortress. And they were like impregnable. No one will ever get to take that country because you've got to come up these mountains and they're just going to fire the arrows down at you and you're done. They thought of themselves as unconquerable. They had this pride about them and they especially had a pride when it came to Israel. And so that's why you hear what I say. Even if you're like an eagle flying up into the sky, you're going to crash land. He continues, if thieves came to you, if robbers at night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. But would they not only steal as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave a, a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, and you will not detect it. We start to see what's happening in this book is there's a personification going on. Edom is called Esau. We hear Esau, if you grew up with any kind of scripture knowledge, you think, oh, wait a second, Jacob and Esau. Right? Jacob and Esau have a very interesting story. They're twin brothers. They were born... Almost the same time, the one came out holding the other's heel. Let me actually read the passage so we can read this together from Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. 
The babies jostled each other within her. They're already fighting in the womb. And she said, why is this happening to me? It must have been pretty painful. And so she went to inquire of the Lord. He said to you, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out and he was red. His whole body was like a hairy garment. He was just covered in red hair. I kind of like Esau there. I was like, oh. And so they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping on the heel, like, I'm coming with you. And so he named, was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Our story actually goes back a long time, a thousand years. The story of these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, and the sibling rivalry. If you know the story, what happens is, at some point, Esau is the firstborn, so he gets all the inheritance. But at some point, he's this big, tough, manly hunter guy. He goes, goes get some food. But he gets home, and he's so hungry. And he says to his brother, can you, can you give me some, some stew, please? And his brother says, okay, as long as you give me your inheritance. Now, Esau had pride. Esau thought, what's the inheritance to me? I'll make myself a nation. I'm, I'm already going to be rich. I am Esau, but I'm hungry, Esau. Give me the stew. It actually says it's, it's red pottage, which is very interesting. This red color pops up again. It's important because the word Edom means simply like red, big red. And Edom grows up to be a lot like Esau. The sibling rivalry continues. And what it makes me think about is just to remember in our own families, have you seen before where kind of decisions get made or you're working with your family and something happens and it affects later generations? It's not just you. Family splits, family feuds. It's, 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 a, it's a difficult thing. And we're starting to see that this pride between Jacob and Esau starts to become an issue. In that day, declares the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom? Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified. And everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. That's heavy. That's how the prophets rolled. They weren't pulling punches. Because of your violence, you will be brought down. Now notice he starts to address some of the things that Edom's famous for. It's almost like if you're addressing Canada and addressing like their hockey teams or their maple syrup or their awesome peacemaking or something like that. And he's saying, hey, your wise men are going to tear down. They were very famous in Taman. They were the wise men of Taman. Renowned throughout the world for having like these kind of proto-philosophers. Edom was known for its wisdom. And so he says, you're wise men? They don't have the understanding it's going to take. Your warriors, your, your Esau-like jocks, they're going to become little scaredy cats. They are going to be terrified about what's going to happen. And why is this going to happen? 
because of your violence against your brother. The history between Israel and Edom is a long one. It goes from Jacob and Esau, and, and, and what happens is Esau goes down to his lands and, and a nation starts to grow. We know what happens with Abraham, and he ends up, uh, his, uh, we see Joseph and the brothers all going to Egypt and coming back. Well, on the way back from Egypt, when Moses is helping them leave Egypt, he comes to the land of Edom, and he comes to the king, and he says to the king of Edom, hey, can we have safe passage? Like, we're, we're relatives, Related clans. Can, can we come through? And the king of Edom is like, nah, no. Refuse. He actually has a bunch of soldiers. He says, no, I, I, we're not, we don't have to have a fight here. But if you try to step on my land, it's on. And so the Lord speaks to Israel and says, no, you won't fight against them. There's actually a passage that's really important in Deuteronomy 23.7. It says this, do not despise an Edomite. For the Edomites are related to you. It also says don't despise Egypt because you, they gave you safe passage for a while in their land. Isn't that interesting? Even Egypt, who ended up enslaving them, he still says, hey, remember that time when you guys were in famine? Do not despise an Edomite. That being said, as Israel starts to settle on the land, what happens is there starts to be some wars. King Saul actually defeats the Edomites. Finally, David, by the way, David, it says it was Rudy, so he might have had red hair too, so maybe he's the redemption of us redheads. Uh, we, we see that David defeats the Edomites. And then from then on, the Edomites seem to be like a vassal state of Israel. They might have a chief or a king, but they always kind of give homage to Israel. The, the older will serve the younger. There's always this relationship, except for every once in a while, Edom will join up with Moab and go attack them and try to kill them. There's fights that happen all the time. So basically, there's this ongoing war between the two brothers for a long time. But Israel is usually the victor. Or from Esau's perspective, the oppressor. And so you start to realize, when it says that this, this violence you've done against Jacob, Esau had some reasons. Edom had some reasons for what they're doing. But God wants to call them out and lets them understand why is Edom being judged so harshly? And God lays out, this is why. Reason number one. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and they cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You stood aloof. You watched from your mountaintops and you watched your brother getting beat up and attacked and robbed and you were like one of them. You watched your brother ransacked. You watched your relatives destroyed. God doesn't like it. And this is what he says to them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. Do you see what Esau's doing? He's been gloating. He's been boasting. Ah, Israel, see? They can't take us. We're in our mountain fortress. Israel? Ha-ha. It says rejoices. They're probably singing songs over them. Yay, the destruction of the Israelites. They boasted about them. We're much stronger than you, Israel. You can't take Babylon. Babylon can't touch us. 
Can you think about this? When I actually think about it for Edom, I can understand why. That's the, that's the hard part when you're reading this book. You can understand why. They've been this vassal state. They've been the second fiddle. They've had Israel kind of taken from them, making them pay them gold and money all this time. And so they gloat a bit. Do you ever have it in your heart? You, I just, is it hard for you not to rejoice when someone that's hurt you gets hurt? Just be, be honest. That part of you kind of wants to see them get hurt. Edom has been doing this for centuries. Oh, wouldn't it be nice for Israel to get theirs? And when it happens, they're like, yeah. <laughs> Pointing figure, making jokes. I think we, we need to admit that this darkness can reside in our own hearts. I know it can in mine. It's easy, isn't it, to, just to laugh at the misfortune of other people? I would say, since I was young, I've been watching our culture. I feel like our humor, our sense of humor, has been getting meaner and meaner. Even our commercials are kind of like, me. It's, it's funny to laugh at someone who gets hurt. Whereas before, it used to be like, oh. Are we becoming a more callous, a more cruel people? But Esau's gloating. But that's not all they did. And he says, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. They took it up a notch. They didn't just watch and laugh. They kind of saw their brother getting beat up and they kind of put their hand in there and yoink, got their wallet. This is what's been going on with Edom. They, they actually came through the gates and started looting. I don't know if you've seen any of these riots that happen every once in a while, the, the looting that happens. I saw it in Europe like this year. I remember, I remember especially in L.A. when the riots happened down there. A bunch of people started stealing, even from their own brothers and sisters. Edom has been stealing from its relatives. What it should have been doing, it probably should have been mourning at least, right? Mourning, oh, my poor family. We're praying like, God, please. That's, that's the least they could have done. Instead, they actually participate. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. What? You have a stream of refugees coming out of Jerusalem, escaping the carnage. And they come down the road and they see Edom and they're like, Oh, our relatives, okay. I killed. He killed the refugees. Or if they didn't kill them, come on in. Oh, thank you, thank you. Shackles, we're sending you to Babylon as slaves. We're going to get some good coin for you guys. Human trafficking is going on here. This is why God is upset. They laughed at the destruction of Israel. They participated and robbed, and what they did to the refugees was unconscionable. And then God continues to speak about the day of the Lord for all nations. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. You have done what you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. I think this is also talking about Babylon now. Just as you drank on my holy hill, you took my drink and you drank on our holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. 
The judgment is continuing. The judgment of God is this theme that I, I have to say we don't really enjoy in the 21st century. It's a hard one, right? Is, to be honest, when you read this, it's like, oh. I think largely because we read it through the eyes of Christ, and that's, that's probably a good thing. We should be uncomfortable with things. We, should, we should recognize grace as this beautiful thing. But we also have to recognize God is sovereign. And what we're seeing here is it says, what, hap- what you did will be done to you. It's kind of this, this is the way God's judgment happens, is one nation rises up and crushes another nation, does horrific things, and then, then another nation does that to them. And it's just like this kind of like playground bullies. One's beating one up, and then a bigger one comes along and beats them up, and then another one comes along and beats them up, and they're all trying to figure out who's the toughest, but it's, it's kind of the way of the world. And that's what, the, that, that's what I think when I think of the judgment of God. I think he's, he's allowing these nations to destroy themselves. It's kind of, it comes out of their own violence. Then that violence comes back on them. It's a cycle that happens. And the question is, will we ever learn? And what we hear is, someday the day of the Lord is coming. It'll be a great reversal when this is all overturned. Because God's judgment, by the way, doesn't just include Edom. It includes Israel itself. This whole thing is about how Israel was judged for what it did, including, I believe, to what it did to Edom. And Babylon came in to help them realize, oh, I got to rely on God, not on my soul or sword and my kingdom and all this. And I, I got to throw this out there too. I believe, but it says that all nations, all nations will be judged. That includes Canada. And in many ways, we feel pretty proud of ourselves. We, we try to make sure we're pretty peaceful. But there's a lot of things that our wealth has accumulated from pillaging Africa. We've done things like refuse the Jewish boat that came in World War II. There's things that Canada has done that's wrong. And so we will be judged, and the USA as well. We can't think of ourselves like, we're just the good guys. But at the same time, what I think that means is that the church needs to be Obadiah. We need to speak up prophetically to our government, to our nation, to ourselves and say, hey, remember how God looks at this. Do not do this to your brother. We know that all the nations will be judged. Jesus will return. There will be an accounting. But there's hope in all this. That's actually a good thing. Justice will happen one day. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire. Joseph a flame. Esau a stubble. They'll set fire and destroy him. How's that working? Well, we know that Edom is destroyed. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. That's why we don't have Edomites. Destructive Edom is a hard pill to swallow, but what we're hearing is evil actions have repercussions. Judgment comes. But hope is there that there will be a restoration, a glimpse of grace in all of this. And it continues. It talks about the people from Negev in the mountains of Esau, Ephraim and Syrium. And then I love this part. The company of Israelite exiles, those very exiles, those people who are now in Babylon, they're going to return to Canaan. The exiles from Jerusalem, who are in Shepard, they will end up having Negev. Deliverers will go up a Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Someday, God is going to reign in peace 
over the entire world. Is that our hope? The cycle of one nation beating another, my, my nation can beat up your nation, all this. This is, is going to be passed away. God will come and God will reign in peace someday. Someday there will be deliverance. And I hope we have that hope. That we know and trust that God is going to set all things right. That Jesus will return. The scales will return. This is a picture of a remnant. There's this people of Israel who have gone through the fire, who have been judged, and now it's like, okay, now it's time for peace. God will give you grace. Someday war will be abolished. Slavery will be abolished. Human trafficking will be abolished. For now, we speak up like Obadiah, like prophets. To say, God doesn't like that. God is judge. God is sovereign. What does this mean for us, though? Like thousands of years later, thinking like, what? How does... Thankfully, it's been personified. I think there is things to learn on a national scale. Like I said, make sure that we recognize our own culpability. Make sure we don't just think that we're always right. Esau thought that they were right. Make sure that we fight for peace and justice. But I hope personally it gives us a sense of our, our own pride. I need to look into my own heart and see, like, is there not something of Edom there? Something where I feel like, hey, if... if if someone's wronged me, I should wrong them. I want judgment on these people. And when we have really, really good reasons, just like Edom did. I've been thinking about this whole past week, and, it, and I, I'm going to be careful here, and I, I love to hear feedback, because I just want to say I'm just, I'm just thinking right now out loud. There's been this theme on the internet, punch a Nazi. See it? Wouldn't, it? wouldn't it be sweet to punch a Nazi, like, Part of you is like, yeah, like, oh, those, that's horrific, vile, destructive thought processes. And part of me, I'm just being honest, see that picture when I first saw it, I was like, oh, and then, and then I, and my heart is wrestling with it. Anyone else have that came, same kind of struggle when you think about that? It's like, oh, what, do, what do I do with this? I, I had an email from a friend of mine about this whole thing, because he was seeing his friends posting things on the internet about punching Nazis, and, and he wrote me this. Hey guys, I'm reaching out to you because I value both of your discernment, patience, and wisdom. I've been seeing a lot of discussions lately about this Charlottesville stuff and the rising expression of white supremacy in the States and here in Toronto. What concerns me is the response of many Christians and even some church people, their endorsements of violence in response to this threat. I'm doing my best to offer alternative thoughts, but I feel at a loss during this flurry of emotions. I have experienced racial violence in my day. And this sounds eerily the same, but now I am on the side of power. Can you offer any thoughts or words or links or readings that I can use to advocate for peace in times like this? I ask for myself because I'm feeling lost that Christians are not seeing the value of peaceful, loving, and long-term response in a time like this. Thanks in advance. I've been just letting this wash over me for the past week. That's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about this to you because I'm trying to figure it out myself. 
he's saying, he grew up actually in New York and then in Sarnia. Sarnia wasn't the easiest place to grow up if you were a person of color. He's saying, I, I've received violence for my ethnicity from white supremacy. But now I'm worried that Christians are going to feed in to the violence. My heart feels his confusion, his frustration. It makes me think, what if Edom had responded differently? What if Edom mourned and wailed when its brother Israel was attacked? What if they cried out to God and they prayed for the victims? What if they showed up at the walls to defend? What if they took the, refuge in, the refugees in from Israel and gave to them generously? What if they put themselves in harm's way to rescue? And I hear all these questions and I ask myself, how do I need to act? How do I act in, in all this? I'll say this, I'm very proud of the people who are standing up and protesting the racism that's happening. I think that's really important. I also am overwhelmed by some people's bravery and, and I look at my own heart and I wonder, could I be like this officer here? Defending the very people who hate him so vitrally. When I, when I see his face, I, I see Jesus. I see a hope for, for peace. I see a glimmer of justice. I see the brokenness behind them, and I, I pray for the day when those people will see judgment, when they will be called out for that, when God will let them know the evil that was done. And I don't have all the answers. All I know is that I need to watch out for the pride that's in my heart and how I do things, and I think we all need to watch out for the pride in our hearts. I know I sometimes struggle with this desire to, to see those people who want to see me destroyed, destroyed. Right? There's like this, oh, this, this hurt that can happen. The main problem is it's so tempting to want to be the one also who hurts. To join in like Edom did. When I feel hurt, I might lash out. How many of our families see this danger every day? I, I find it really interesting that often the people we actually do lash out are our own families. Like my wife does something I, I'm angry with. Do I ever lash out? Do I ever hurt her? I'm ashamed to say I, I, it, it has happened. Thankfully not a lot, but I'm being honest. How about your children? They ever just get on your nerves to the point where definitely your brother and sister. <laughs> your mom and dad. Isn't it easy to, to lash out? Or maybe your coworkers. Maybe even people in your church. It gets hard. Christians are not immune to this. I, I, I think about this like sometimes when there's churches, it can kind of feel competitive, right? Is it easy like something happens to another church? Oh, yeah, well, that's because their theology is wrong. <laughs> Have a little bit of satisfaction there? Far better to realize that when it comes to judgment, that's in God's hands. My job is to be a good brother. Grace is the way. I'm thinking just about Trinity Baptist Church just down the road in Appleby there. I actually called Pastor Carl this week and talked with him a little bit. And he was very thankful for all the churches reaching out. He's been, he's been so thankful this, this, the churches are coming together as family. But he also has some concerns. He asked us as a church to pray, pray for the church through this, pray for a chance. He's, it, was, it was amazing to hear his heart. He's like, pray that the gospel could be heard because of this. I'm like, whoa. 
He also had this concern because on the walls of their church, the word ISIS was written. And so he's getting a lot of calls from people who are really angry and full of hatred, and he's worried. He says, pray for me to have wisdom so that when I speak, I show the love of Christ in a way that helps show the true gospel, not this other side. So just pray that we do that and be there with them. Grace is the way. In fact, I think about this. If Esau and Jacob could have reconciliation, why didn't Israel and Edom? There's a passage, I think, from their own history that if they took it to heart, they could have changed the whole way that they interacted with each other. This is from Genesis 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Brothers weeping for their battles. And Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, please. I have found favor in your eyes. Accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. If you want to see the face of God, if you want to show the face of God, it's the face of grace. It's the face of returning love. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a face where you truly allow God to change your heart and reconcile. And it happens all the time. I've seen it in this very church where, where people are able to make up, try to go together in the church and be strong together. It's a beautiful thing, and, I, and I'm, I'm so thankful for it. He saw God's face. So my friends, judgment is real. It's in God's hands. It comes as this outworking of humanity's own evil. The bully gets beat up by the other bully. We should not be the bully, that's for sure. We should not gloat when the bully's beat up or be the one beating up. But in the meantime, we need to defend those who the bullies are beating up. We need to stand up for them, help ensure it doesn't happen again. And we do this with a hope because thankfully, someday, the principal is coming. Jesus. And he's going to ensure that the bullies never get to operate again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, today we, we gather as a family. And we know there's chances for sibling rivalries, but we thank you for the love of Christ has drawn us together that we can operate despite our differences together as one around this table. We thank you that this table represents forgiveness and grace. Lord, we pray for Trinity Baptist Church. We pray for the community as they gather in Crossroads. Continue to build them, use them as a light for Jesus. Give wisdom to all of them as they speak about what's happened so that they can show the gospel. We ask for ourselves, Lord God, as we're here with our own families, with our own church, with, with our country, would you give us a heart that turns towards grace, towards forgiveness, a true forgiveness where we can embrace one another. We pray that you would kill pride in our hearts, the thing that holds us back from true reconciliation, that we would not be like Edom, waiting to gloat in revenge, but that we would be like Jesus, 
who gave his life for his attackers, who said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Would we be vehicles of the gospel? We pray for the bread that was broken, that as we take it, Lord God, you would already be transforming the pride in our hearts into reconciliation. As we take the cup of the bloodshed, that that, Lord God, would remind us and work within us so that we would become a peace-loving, forgiving people. In the name of Jesus, amen.